back on air. Hello and great to have your company once again on this latest episode of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. For those new to the show, it's the podcast that takes a sideways look at Ashes cricket through the eyes of the one Ashes Test Wonders. During the 1990s, seven cricketers played their one and only Ashes Test, three from England and four from Australia. We've already spoken with Steve Watkin, who played in 1993, and Peter McIntyre and Joe Angel, who played in 1995. Their stories are waiting for you wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us to the 1997 Ashes in England, the closest series of the decade, with England managing to win two, yes, two tests, to Australia's three. After three tests, it was still all to play for. England winning the first test at Edgebaston, which included that memorable double century from Nasser Hussein. The second test at Lords was drawn, largely due to rain. And then Australia dominated the third test at Old Trafford to level the series. England made one change for the fourth test, the selectors plumping for the swing bowling option of Mike Smith over the experienced Andy Caddick, who ended up with 24 wickets during the series. It was a decision not without controversy, as we'll find out right now from today's guest, the Gloucestershire stalwart, Mike Smith. Let's bring him into the attack. Mike Smith was a left-arm swing bowler for Gloucestershire in England. He took 533 first-class wickets at 24.68, taking five wickets in an innings on 22 occasions and 10 in a match on five occasions. He played his one test for England in the fourth test of the 1997 Ashes at Headingley. Mike, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. No, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And um, I guess let's start at the beginning. You were born in Yorkshire. Did you grow up watching and, and supporting the White Rose? Um, yes and no, really. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I did grow up near Leeds and a lot of my kind of early cricket was kind of following my dad around who played local league cricket played for two or three teams in the Leeds, Bradford, Wakefield kind of area. But he wasn't a huge fan of Yorkshire cricket at that time. I think it was, uh, they had all sorts of trouble with um, Jeff Boycott and one or two others, didn't they? And there was a, there was a yeah. lot of infighting at the time. So he wasn't a member of Yorkshire cricket. I think he would have liked to have been, but the infighting kind of put him off a little bit. So we didn't go and watch Yorkshire very often. Obviously, this is a Ashes-focused podcast. What are your first memories of Ashes cricket during that time? You know, watching on TV, or did you go to any games in Yorkshire? Yeah, well, funnily enough, you know, I'm sure you hear a lot of people say that they were at Headingley eighty-one. <laughs> um, I actually was at Headingley eighty-one on the on the last day. I didn't see uh, Beefy's runs on the fourth day. But it was school holidays, and um, we didn't have much else to do, so we went to. Headingley on the fifth day and there wasn't a huge crowd there maybe a few thousand at most because it was obvious it seemed obvious that Australia were going to win and it would be over by lunchtime obviously it didn't um, work out that way so I went my mum took us down and I went with my brothers to watch the last day of that you know when Willis got Bob Willis got all his wickets and bowled unbelievably and um, I remember going to the toilet and then the first wicket went and my brothers kept saying go to the toilet again go to the toilet again I kept going back to the toilet and every time I went to the toilet a wicket fell so you know that was just their kind of way of trying to get England to win the match but yeah I do remember 
the last few wickets going and running onto the field at the end. I mean, it was a, a phenomenal day. I think it was probably, how old was I then? Maybe 14? Before we get to, to Gloucester and obviously your long career with them, uh, a one-county man as you were, just going to briefly talk about the combined universities because obviously you, you played for them, didn't you, between 88 mm. and 90, I think it was, and playing alongside the likes of Nasser Hussein and Michael Atherton as your captain. So how was that whole experience? It, that was good. I mean, I had a long kind of history with Michael Atherton because, um, you know, from under 13 level through to under 18 level, I was always I was always captain of Yorkshire schoolboys and Michael was always captain of Lancashire. Mm. So we played against each other from the ages of 12, 13, all okay. the way through. And we played England schools together as well. I think he was captain of that team. So I saw an awful lot of it whilst I was growing up and for him to you know be captain of the combined universities just went with it so yeah it was it was great um, oh, I mean that and, is outstanding yeah. isn't it you know you think you played schoolboys against him as a captain combined universities who'd have thought at that point that one day he yeah. would be your England captain yeah absolutely I mean England schools as well so you know we we did play with or against each other several times a year from the age of 13 onwards and he was a brilliant player even back in those days he was I remember one game I think it was under 15 Yorkshire against Lancashire and his reputation was fantastic even then and I think it was at the Yorkshire Bank cricket ground they won the toss and battered and there was a huge crowd there people that were in with deck chairs and cool boxes with sandwiches and beers and whatever and the whole of the ground was covered in people you, you know it was three or four deep all the way around the boundary edge for an under 15 match and I thought this was a bit odd but it was it was because they'd all come to watch Mike Atherton get really? an inevitable inevitable 100 against Yorkshire schoolboys. so it was a big fixture anyway but to have somebody like him playing really you know it swelled the crowd. Of course back then the combined university played in the BNH Cup, didn't they? So you got the experience of playing against uh, the county sides. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we beat one or two of them, actually. I mean, I think yeah. I played in 88 and 90. I was in Germany because uh, I did French and German at university and I was placed ah. in Germany in 89. So I missed I missed that year when they did win quite a few games, actually. <laughs> they beat Worcester. In fact, the first, first ever game I played for combined universities was against Gloucestershire at, at Bristol. Tony Wright and Andy Stovold opened the batting. Martin Spate got a brilliant um, 80 odd for the universities in that game. Brilliant innings. Remarkable. But this, you know, despite him getting sort of 70 or 80, we, we still lost that game, actually. Yeah, no, I noticed that was your first game. And I thought, well, that's strange. It was against Gloucestershire because Mark Elaine was playing, of course, who had become your captain. Right. David Draveney was captain at that yeah. time. I think Bill right. Athey was playing, made 82. Right. So. Yeah, no, it was great fun, actually, because we yeah. had no expectations. No, of course. Yeah, you know, whatsoever that we were going to be, be anybody. Steve Waugh played in one of those games as well against us, I think. Yeah. And um, for Somerset. And he got, did he get Mike Atherton out? I think he got Atherton out with a slower ball. He kind of, that did back he? Of the All right. slower ball was the first yeah, yeah. time I've ever seen it. I know he wasn't quick, Steve Waugh, but he did have a brilliant slower ball. And I think uh, Atherton ended up chipping it to cover. How does the opportunity with uh, Gloucestershire arise? I played for the NAYC team uh, against Sri Lanka one summer, Sri Lanka, under-19s. And Graham, a guy called Graham Wiltshire, he was the manager of that team and he, he was also the coach at Gloucestershire. And he said, have you got a county interested in you? I said, no, <laughs> I haven't. He said, well, why don't you come and 
like Gloucestershire for, in our second team for a few games. Okay. And uh, so that's how it all started at, at Gloucestershire. Yeah. And what, what do you remember of your early days? Do you remember your first class debut for Gloucestershire? Yeah, I think that was at Worcester. And I mean, again, you know, that was 91, my first class debut. I mean, at that stage, you know, you were just coming to the end of the old kind of era, you know, before things got serious and you had mm. to get fit. And yeah. so, you know, Sky, Sky Sports came in in the mid-90s. And yeah. my first few seasons were actually curtailed due to my own lack of fitness. I never really got past the Cheltenham Festival in any of the first few seasons. I mean, the, you know, Cheltenham Festival sort of July-ish. Mm. I was done. I was done by then. You know, either injured or knackered. But uh, my first first debut was at Worcester, and you had Hick, the Graham Hick, and Tom Moody, and Bill Neal, Tim Curtis, mm. David Leatherdale. I mean, again, just guys that I just felt were way too good for me. I'll give it a go. You know, I said yeah. I'll give it a go, but. I didn't get a wicket in that. In fact, I didn't get a wicket in the next game, which was against Hampshire, I think, um, at Bristol. It took me 50 overs, actually, to get a first-class first wicket. I remember that. As I was thinking, getting up to 45, 50 overs, I'm never going to get a wicket in yeah. first-class cricket. But eventually I did get one. I think it was against Yorkshire. I was going to say, uh, appropriate mm-hmm. enough, I think it was against Yorkshire at Sheffield, mm-hmm. wasn't it? It yeah. was, Ashley Metcalf. Um, yeah. Foot bowled behind his legs first over. My first over, anyway. I'm not sure it was first over of the game, yeah. but certainly my first over. And then I was uh, off the mark at Sheffield. Yeah, um, yeah. Then we played the Sunday game at Sheffield, and I got Richard Richardson out, which I think gave me a, a lot of confidence. Mm. It was a, a huge surprise to me that <laughs> I could I could nick off somebody like that. I think that's where the, the confidence actually started to grow a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, what about the other players in the team then? You got you got some big characters in that Gloucestershire team when you. When you're starting out, I mean, you know, the likes of Jack Russell, Bill Athey, I mentioned earlier, David Lawrence, Sid Lawrence. What was yeah. it like stepping into a dressing room with those guys? Yeah, I mean, huge characters. Bill Athey, I mean, Jeremy, you know, Lloyd's who's recently uh, mm. passed away, unfortunately. Mm. These guys were, you know, proper characters and proper players. Yeah, Courtney, is, Courtney Walsh as well. Mark Elaine was just making his way. You know, it was good to to be in a dressing room with those kind of guys. I mean, I owe quite a lot to Bill Athey, actually, because I was bowling at him in the nets. And he noticed I wasn't fit enough. And he said, you're not going to make anything unless you change things because, you know, you are very predictable, very samey, you're not fit enough. You know, harsh words, but, you know, tough love from Mm. Bill, to be fair. Um, He knew what it took to be good. He was very fit himself and very determined, very physically, very strong as well. So, you know, he gave me the kick up the backside that I needed, I think. Yeah, and you, you you took that on board, did you? Then you embark on a fitness regime, or how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, after two or three years at Gloucester, I was having a serious think about whether I was going to carry on because I was getting 20, 25 wickets a year, as I say, done by July. Andy Stobbold, who was coach sort of mid-90s, he, he sent me down to see a couple of guys at Bristol University one winter and basically said to them, you know, make me and a couple of others, Tim Hancock and Bobby Dawson, you know, these guys aren't fit enough, get them fit. Um, and then we'll see what see what they can do. Yeah. So I did take that seriously. It was a kind of a make or break for me. I decided, you know, if you are going to make a proper go of this, you, you do have to be a bit fitter than you are. So, yeah, they got me fit at Bristol University that winter. And yeah. after that, my results, amazingly, <laughs> my results improved. Yeah, I was going to say from, that. you know, about 95, you you really started hitting your straps, didn't you, and taking a lot of wickets. Just quickly before I come to that, you mentioned the winters then. 
I'm always curious to know, what did you do during the winters in your early days? Well, uh, various things. I mean, we did only get paid from April to September. You, you know, you could choose to have that spread over 12 months, but when it wasn't very much, there was not very much point <laughs> in that. So you did have to find a job. Uh, two winters I worked at, um, at Parcel Force in Bristol, um, packing lorries full of parcels and goods. I mean, that was you know, that got me stronger to a certain extent. I didn't have to go to the gym after that uh, five days a week. And then, yeah, as we just alluded to, probably the mid-90s is when you really start to become, you know, the performer that we all know, if, if you like, for, for Gloucestershire. That You took 59 wickets at 21 in 95, 16 at 26 in 96. So, yeah, do you, do you suddenly start feeling you're a better cricketer? And what do you put that down to? Is it the fitness training or is it just the experience of bowling all these overs? What do you put it down to? I think mainly down to the fitness. I mean, the, my first decent year was nine, 95. And I, I think I got 50 odd wickets in that year. And did, I didn't play, I don't think I played half of July, August or September mm. because I got injured against the West Indies because I was doing well and I was becoming to get on the England radar. And we played the West Indies in one of their warm up games for the Test Series. Jack was captain. He said, do you want to play? I said, well, I'm a bit knackered. Because I I'd bowled a lot of overs that year already. And he said, I could probably do with a few days off. And he said, you're on the England radar, play. You know, play. I'll bowl you 10 overs and that's it. Get a couple of wickets. Keep it, keep the momentum going. So I agreed kind of on that basis. I got into my 11th over, would you believe? I'd got two or three wickets. I'd got into my 11th over and then pulled my intercostal. So I said to Jack, I thought you were going to, you know, just yeah. pull me 10, ten over. <laughs> oh, you know, bother kind of you, thing. You were on um, a roll, yeah. I couldn't resist. I was on a roll, <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. So that was me for the rest of that season. But I did get picked for England A to go yeah. to, Pakistan, to Pakistan that winter, despite having missed half the season. Yeah, and that was injury here as well with this rib injury, I think it was. Again, there? yeah, I'd never yeah. really. They picked me and I wasn't really over the rib injury. I'm not sure I would have played much over there anyway. Dean Headley went, uh, Ed Giddens, Craig White. I think that those were the three that NASA, NASA was captain. NASA had in mind to play most of the games. I did play one one-day game. I think I got one wicket caught on the boundary. But then six weeks into the trip, it was clear that I wasn't going to play much, so came home. Well, you clearly shrugged off that injury because, as I said, the following season you took 60 wickets, but... If we then fast forward to, to 97, which is obviously a key season in your career, I mean, that was statistically anyway your best season, wasn't it? 78 wickets at 16 <laughs> in the county championship. Would you say that was your best season as a bowler? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was a wetty start to the summer, 97. I mean, right up until kind of late May, the wickets were helpful to me, yeah. put, put it that way. And the ball was swinging, you know, I was over the side injury got a lot fitter and stronger yeah, and loving life, really. Probably that's the best season I had. I think what led up to the Test match, we went to Yorkshire. We played a championship game at Yorkshire at Headingley and I got 10 wickets in that match. So that was uh, probably helped me get picked for the Headingley yeah. Test match. Yeah, I noticed that game. And then your first taste against the Australians, obviously we'll come to your Ashes Test in a minute, but you did play them for Gloucestershire, didn't you, at the start of the season? Mm -hmm. And you had Mark Taylor caught behind by by Jack Russell off the fourth ball or something like that very early on. So, again, is, is that a big moment in your career? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 
I don't know whether you remember, but Mark Taylor was on a terrible yeah, run of form. Yeah. But, you know, he literally <laughs> couldn't get a run. And this was, uh, you know, this match against us was kind of not last chance saloon, but if he didn't get runs in this game, the knives really would have been out. And it was it was that match. I think somebody presented him with, as he got off the bus. Do you remember? Somebody presented him with a bat that was about four feet wide. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, that didn't go down well. And then, you know, lo and behold, he nicked off. Yeah, in the first first over, but uh, I think he got run second in his. He didn't face the first ball. He, he let Matthew Elliott do that. I think second time round yeah. in the second innings, he didn't want to face, which you know he got some stick for. Yeah, you mentioned Steve War earlier. You uh, you also bowled him that day for ninety two, denying him a hundred. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a bit annoyed with him afterwards because he'd said in the paper that we had a modest attack. Mm. Or some, something like that. But still bowling, which what else do you want me to do? You know, I was happy with that. And you also took the wicket of Matthew Elliott, a wicket you'd have dearly liked later in the summer, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I bowled pre- pretty well. I think I got yeah. two for two for in both. Two in both innings, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't as one-sided affair as Steve Waugh made out. I think we yeah. held our own. Definitely. Okay, well, let's get into these ashes. So... We'll come to the fourth test in which you played in a moment. What about the series up to that point? Had you been following the first three tests quite keenly? Yeah, I remember Nasser getting his um, double hundred at Edgebaston, and it was very kind of evenly matched. I mean, they were billed before they came. They were the, they were billed as the best side ever to come to these shores, weren't they? With Warren, Steve Warren, Mark Warren, Glenn McGrath, Pontin. Pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a decent start, not to mention Healy and Rifle and Gillespie and yeah. Blewett. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are household names, aren't they? they really are, so yeah. it was a fantastic team. And then I was picked uh, in the squad for the Old Trafford match, which was the third test. And I was 12th man. I was quite not pleased. That's, that's the wrong word, but Old Trafford just not one of my grounds. Some grounds you just feel as if, You've got good memories, you've got wickets or runs or whatever there, you've yeah. had good days there. I mean, if you were to ask me to list your least favourite ground in terms of how you've performed there, Old Trafford yeah. is, <laughs> is, is right at the top for me. I mean, I hardly ever got a wicket there. So, it, you know, if they'd looked at that, I don't know whether they'd looked at those stats. Undoubtedly, the right decision to make me 12th man uh, in that match. But obviously being 12th man, you must think, this could nearly be my opportunity. If it doesn't come in this test, it may come in the next one. So are you sort of kind of priming yourself for action, as it were? A little bit, yeah, because because I got 10 wickets at Headingley for Gloucestershire only a few weeks before. I felt that the Headingley game was, you know, there was a little bit of history of horses for courses selections anyway. He wasn't there at Headingley. You know, Martin Bicknell, Steve, Steve Watkin, people like that yeah. played there for England. So I felt that that was probably my best opportunity and that's the way it turned out. At what point did you know you were actually playing in that match then? Was it quite late or was it a few days you were given? Well, therein lies a story. We were holed up at a hotel in Arrogate for a couple of days before the match. We'd been sent on a a bonding session where okay. we had to build, you know, you know the type where you've got to build rafts and carry logs with teammates, that kind of thing. So all the press were saying we should have been in the nets because we'd lost at um, Old Trafford mm. the previous week. You had journalists hiding in the bushes and jumping out, uh, <laughs> taking, taking photographs of us carrying logs and things, which we had to keep an eye on. Now, I was told on the morning of the match, and I didn't know 
with it being my first test, I had no idea whether that was normal or whether people would be told a couple of days before or the day before. I now know what the reason was for that. And there'd been a disagreement, put right. it that way, between senior players and the selectors about who should fill that last spot. So it was either going to be me or Andy Caddick. And the selectors, who were David Graveney, Graham Gooch and Mike Gatton, wanted me to play. And the senior players wanted Andy Caddick. I could sense that something wasn't right. I had no idea what it was. In fact, I only found out what it was many, many years later and had spent those many, many years thinking, you know, what was happening? You know, what happened there? And, you know, it wasn't until I read, I think it was Mathis autobiography and a couple of others that, you know, they revealed that there was this almighty disagreement between senior players and the uh, selectors about who should fill that that last spot. As I say, I did pick up that something was happening, not least because the day before, I bowled at Michael Atherton in the nets. Before I go any further, I've got no problem with anybody, but I went into the nets to bowl at him and he slogged me all over Headingley. He teed off like it was a T20. I was disappearing into the crowd, slapped over cover, nicked over third man, you know, that, that kind of thing. And he played brilliantly, to be fair, but it wasn't the way he usually plays, which left me thinking, this is a bit odd. I mean, does he bat differently for England than... Is this his test match batting rather than his county batting or whatever? Because, you know, he was much more circumspect when you played for Lancashire, much more technically correct. But, yeah, he hammered me all over. Even good balls were disappearing back over my head. <laughs> it was like that. So I knew that something was afoot. But I think that was his way of saying, I think I prefer Andy Caddick. Was Andy Caddick still around at this point? Or had he left? No, he was still around, I'm pretty yeah. sure. You know, he played the previous test at Old Trafford. Was he frosty with you? No, not no, not particularly. No, I mean, there were, you know, some guys that I knew very well, or pretty well, and the, there's no other Gloucestershire player in the team, but I knew Dean Headley and, you know, mm. Mark Elam and Darren Goff, Alec, Alex Stewart, they're absolutely fine. David just, Lloyd, was he part of the selectors camp or the player camp, do you think? That's a good question. I think he was probably on my side. He'd, mm. he'd, he'd come to watch me bowl a couple of games before the test match, and I think it was at Cheltenham, and I bowled okay. So I'm not sure is the answer, but um, he may well have been on mm. my side. He wasn't frosty in any way or, or off. He was great. And I'm sure the irony wasn't lost on you that you went for this team building in Harrogate. And yeah. then the end result of that was this kind of odd atmosphere. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a bit odd. I mean, I, you know, I remember thinking this this is odd, but I didn't know whether because it was my first game, I didn't really know whether it was normal or Yeah, and then actually funny enough, I watched the old BBC highlights of the test earlier on today. So you got Michael Atherton at the top. He just said it was the humid conditions, England wanted a swing bowler, gives them more variety, you know, and you were the man. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't swing, though. That was the, no. the problem. I mean, I don't think it's any secret that I was heavily reliant on swing. Mm. wasn't express pace. I'm not tall. I'm not mm. strong. So whilst I could bowl swing, I, I could hit a length and a line, and I could swing the ball. If the ball doesn't swing, then you've got some major problems. It was odd because that really was the only week of the year that I didn't I didn't swing the ball. As I said earlier, yeah. it was, the, the balls were good. 
you know, they were conducive to swing bowling. So were the weather conditions up to then. But I just couldn't get it for what I couldn't get it swinging at yeah. the test match at all. The wicket was abrasive. The the wind was buffeting, which is uh, the enemy of the swing bowl. You really can't get into a rhythm. You know, it was in the wrong direction as well. I'm not making excuses here. There's no, no, no. There's, you know, but there are reasons why swing bowling was more difficult on that day than any other day, I think. And yeah. So, yeah, just to go through this test match in order. So England batted first, didn't do it that well, crumbled a little bit. Jason Gillespie, he mentioned earlier, took seven wickets and you were one of his victims. Uh, yeah. Was he bowling pretty quickly that day? Well, I only faced two balls, Graham, to be yeah. fair. <laughs> they were pretty, pretty Did quick. you see either of them? Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember what happened to the first one. I don't think I hit it, put it that way. I might have yeah. left it. It might, it might have beaten me back. But, um, yeah, the second one, not my... Leg stick out, and uh, that, but, that it, was but it. it goes to show their strength in depth, doesn't it? Which is when you mentioned earlier about their side, we, we, we immediately go Warren McGrath, and then we've got someone like Gillespie taking seven wickets, so you know. and rifle, you know, rifle, and rifle. Bowler yeah, as well. I mean, he, you know, Gillespie was downhill with the wind, and mm. yes, he, he did bowl pretty quickly, he picked up seven for seven for 30 odds, was it? In that, yeah, means, and mm. rifle bowled up the hill. I mean, he's you know, big, strong lad. It's the same. I mean, he was a quality bowler by himself. So, you know, if Warner McGraw didn't get you, then those yeah. two did. And let's talk about once you did take the field and you got to have a bowl, obviously, as you said, it wasn't swinging, but there was that key moment, wasn't there, when Australia were 50 for three. So do you want to take us through that from your perspective? Well, yeah, because uh, Darren Goff and Dean Headley had opened the bowling bowl really well. They were in a bit of trouble. You know, I think they were three or four down by that stage and Elliot, Matthew Elliot was still in and I, I got one to take his edge, which was nice. And it wasn't a regulation slip because it, it, it kind of looped. It was off the kind of shoulder mm. of the bat and it looped, but Graham Thorpe, unfortunately put it down and I didn't look like taking a wicket to be honest after that. He went on to get 199. They ended up getting 501 declared and we lost by an innings it was a crucial moment not just in the match but in the series I think because the series was finally poised and if I think we've got him out then it would have been Ian Healy and you know you could have brought Goffey or Dean Headley back had a go at the tail and I don't think they would have got anywhere near 500 I mean we, we might well have got a first innings lead and then you know Pontin came in as well he got it was his first 100 in test cricket yep. as well you know, whilst I bowled okay, I mean, I was nowhere near my best because the ball wasn't swinging. I think I bowled okay, but there was a time when he took a shine to me and he pulled a ball that was just short of a length, he pulled out of the ground. And then I remember thinking, oh dear. So I, I pitched up the next one a little bit further and he drove that past mid-off. Before. So you're then, you're then thinking, mm, you got yeah. it, really have got it, a sixpence here to, just to keep him quiet. And he, you know, he put on a load with Matthew Elliott. Yeah, but no, I mean, they are fascinating. I find them fascinating, these turning points and matches and series. Mm. But not just that, more so from doing this series in players' careers because Matthew Elliott was one of the wisdom cricketers of the year that year. You must have been in the conversation with all the wickets you took. If you had taken that wicket, he hadn't made 199. You know, it's a lot of what-ifs, isn't it? But well, it's, it's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Yeah. It really it really is. Yeah. I mean, who knows what, what would have happened to him? Because, you know... He was in a stronger position than I was in terms of his position in the Australian team, but he was by no means a certainty. I'm no, sure he no. would have uh, played a few more games after that. 
But yeah, I mean, if as I say, if that had been caught, it would have meant a test a test wicket for me, which would have been nice because I didn't end up getting one. But you know, equally, we could have bowled them out for two hundred, and we've in with a decent chance in that match and that series. But yeah. Australia ended ended up winning that match by an innings, as you said, because they racked up that huge score in the first innings. So going back to what you were saying earlier, then what was the mood like after the match? How was Mike Atherton? How were the other senior players? That it didn't turn into some kind of awful blame game, did it? No, it didn't. Not at all. It didn't. You know, we realised that they'd won that game pretty convincingly. There's no getting away from that, no hiding away. And I think it was just on on to the next one at uh, Trent Bridge, which was coming around mm. pretty quickly. But it was just a question of, you know, were any changes going to be made for that? And that was the change I think they made. But, you know, I wasn't expecting to play 50 test matches. You know, I might have played three or four at the most. That's the kind of player... I was so. I think I think it would have been fair to to give me another go. But then again, you know, it's in the ashes. I didn't have a great game at Headingley. I didn't do myself justice at all. So you can understand them making the change. You can, you know, you can't really put anybody's career ahead of the team's prospects in an Ashes series, can you? But I just wanted to be able to show people that I could do better than I did on that in that match. And how was the communication afterwards? Obviously, you went way back with Michael Atherton. Did he speak with you and say, Mike, we're probably going to go with Andy for the next test? No, David Graveney did. He did give me a ring. I remember taking the call. It was a Gloucestershire match at Bristol. And they said the dressing room telephone had rung and it was for me. And he said, yeah, so we're not going to put you in the squad for the next match. You know, sorry about that. But I, I, I completely understood. You know, you've got to take your chance. And I blame myself for that. Now... You then went back to Gloucestershire, carried on taking wickets, and you were in the frame to be the country's leading wicket-taker, weren't you? How did that pan out for the rest of the season? Well, I know I was close. As we got to the last match of the season, which, as fate would have it, was against Michael Atherton's Lancashire at at, at Bristol. And it was a very close game. I think it ended up in a draw. But I remember there was me, Andy Caddick and Dougie Brown on... 80-odd. I think we were all desperate to be leading wicket-taker. I think I got three or four in that match. They tell me Dougie ended up bowling leg spin at Warwickshire with everybody on the boundaries so that he could get more wickets. You yeah. know, he could end up with a leading. But I think he missed out by one in the end. But, mm. yeah, I was very pleased to get that. I had bowl well that year. Okay, so just to kind of finish up the England side of things... There was a tour to West Indies that winter. Did you think you might be on that? And as a follow-up question, did you think you'd ever play for England again? And were you ever close to a call-up? I think the honest answer again is, is no. I didn't think. What I did do, actually, was um, I was a question on Question of Sport. Okay. Darren, Darren Goff was on Question of Sport and he was asked who was the only England player who played against Australia in the summer not to be selected for the West Indies tour. He didn't get it right. He said it was me. So I, I wasn't expecting. I think Angus Fraser went on that. I think mm. Devon, Devon went on that. So no, I wasn't expecting to go on that. Again, it's not um, ideal conditions for a swing bowler. Mm. And based on how it had gone in the summer, I wasn't expecting mm. to be picked on, on that trip. I think... Doshi then started to do well in one-day cricket. So from '99 to 2004, we won a lot of a lot mm. of trophies. And 
you know, my one day bowling, I was, you know, as pleased with how that went during that period. But, you know, I was well past 30 by then. So I had no expectation of getting the call up. Yeah, Mark Elaine got called up, didn't yep. he? And Jeremy, Jeremy Snape got, uh, he got some games and did well. So, you know, they were, they were picked, but I don't think any any of the others had any serious expectation of being selected Perfect. which helped us actually to be honest because yeah we kept kept a strong team together all year well i was gonna ask what was the secret to gloucestershire's success and maybe that was one of them that you could keep a core of players together was it well i think there was um a few keys i mean john bracewell came in in 98 and that's when his first year as a coach and you know 99 onwards is when we started to to win things i mean our fielding unit at that is just ridiculous. I mean, at, at one point we had John T. Rhodes, Chris Taylor, Mark Elaine, fantastic. Jeremy Snape was brilliant. Matt Windows was brilliant. Martin Ball was the best slip field I've ever seen. So, that you know, I was probably the only donkey in the field, <laughs> to, to be honest. And they used to hide me at Fine leg or on the 45 behind the course, anywhere. But the, the, the other, I mean, Jack, of course, behind the stumps. Yeah. You know, the, these were some of the best fielders in the game. And, you know, because of that, John Bristol's a huge outfield. He, he kept the outfield as big as possible. Mm. So the rope, the rope went back, you know, 100 yards, 100 yards both sides. <laughs> and with us always confident of being the better fielding team, that saved us 30 runs in the field every single match. And then Ian Harvey came in, the king of the death bowling, just that bit of stardust in the one day game that we needed. If he didn't get five for he got a hundred. Brilliant player, the best all-round cricketer that I I played with. And, you know, that slower ball, he got so many wickets with that. You know, he was the best in the world at it. His Yorkers were brilliant. And then John identified, you know, some some gaps. So Kim Barnett came in at the top of the order because we needed a solid opening batter. We brought Craig Spearman in at he was a fantastic player. And uh, Jeremy Snape, he filled in the middle order, that energy, you know, the clever off spin. He could, he could bat and field and a bubbly, a bubbly personality. He filled those gaps in our team. And at the same time, the rest of us were maturing, you know, Matt Windows, Tim Hancock, and Martin Ball, all, all getting to kind of optimum experience age at the same time. And it all ended up in this cocktail yeah. of success. So many trophies, were not Nat West, Benson Hedges, C&G, when it wasn't the Nat West anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular favourite moment from all those cup wins? A lot of them at Lords, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed all the... I mean, the, the one against uh, Glamorgan uh, was a fantastic atmosphere. Lots of the Welsh supporters came over. Uh, the singing in the stadium was unbelievable. Obviously, what they call the cider final against Somerset, yeah. that was... That was fantastic as well. But we, in 2000, we won the, the three one-day competitions, all of them. I think my favourite, to be honest, was the one-day league. You know, it wasn't a Lord's final, but we won the one-day league. You know, when you, when you can win, you, you know, call yourself the best team having played 16 matches home and away, that was my personal favourite to win to win that. Some good celebrations after some of those Lord's wins. What, what were your favourite celebrations? Well, at the time... I was studying law and I had to do that in mainly in the winter, mm. but the exams were in the summer. So I remember a couple of times I couldn't actually go out to celebrate because I had a law, <laughs> a law exam the next day. 
So yeah, I had to miss out on a couple of the celebrations, but I did go on a couple. And one of the exams we were playing Somerset at Bath Cricket Club, and I had an exam that day. And I said to John Bracewell, "Can I do this exam?" And he goes, "No, of course you can't. You've got to play against Somerset." So I said, "I said to the university, I've got this conundrum," mm. and they said, "Well, okay." Why don't you do it at four in the morning? It's three hours. You'll have finished by seven. Yeah. And uh, then you can go off and play the cricket. I said, well, how will that work? He said, well, get what you, get your manager to invigilate. So I asked John Bracewell, I said, can you invigilate this exam? And he said, yes. So we got up at four, at half past three, <laughs> finished the exam, went down to breakfast. We, we won the toss and batted first. I was in quite early, I think. And then Andy Cuddett nipped one back and broke my leg. So it missed missed the pad that bit by the your knee oh, right. where the the pad doesn't cover. Yeah, and it it just nipped it back and hit me on the side of the knee, and I went down like a sack of potatoes and a broken leg. So didn't play for a few weeks after that. And no, of that all people, day. from after we, <laughs> it was Andy Caddy of all people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow, what goes around comes around, eh? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It hit me, and then the next ball, I fended one off to gully and got caught. So I hobbled off. But he didn't realise he'd broken my leg at that point. But, it, um, you know, a week later, it was still not right. So I went to uh, have it x-rayed and they said, yeah, it's broken. Yeah. And when you did decide to, to call time on your career, was that a difficult decision or were you, were you ready to stop? <laughs> no, I mean, it chose me rather than anything else. because With injuries, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my back was pretty knackered. I mean, and, and Jack, Jack retired the same year and I remember... We both went for a back scan and we were comparing results. I mean, his looked horrendous. Yeah. You know, it just looks, his looked far worse than mine. I mean, he'd been bending up and down, as he used mm. to say, 600 times a day, every yeah. day for, for 20 years. Uh, that's what he used to do. We both knew that this would be our last, our last year, 2004. So we both said, we better call it a day. We've had our time. Just on Jack Russell, what were your thoughts? I mean, when you were playing in that 1997 Ashes, did, did you think he should have still been the England wicketkeeper? Jack was an absolutely phenomenal keeper. He went a whole season without conceding a bye. Mm. Once at Gloucestershire in all, in all cricket, he was our heartbeat, our talisman. He kept us all going. He was our brains as well because he would work out ways to get people out. Um, he never let anybody down. He gave absolutely 100% in every game. And if you weren't giving 100%, he'd tell you pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, he was just uh, an awesome, an awesome cricketer. I remember when he, you know, he started standing up to the stumps, didn't he, to me and, and John Lewis. And I remember we were at Scarborough in 01, I think. He just started doing it after that. And he said, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stand up to you today at Scarborough. And I said, okay. He said, I want to practice it before the match starts. So he said, in practice, come steaming down the slope at Scarborough and bowl as fast as you can. And I'm standing up to the stumps. So I did that. And one, one kicked off a length and hit him straight in the eye. And he went off to hospital and he had goodness knows how many stitches in his head, maybe 10, 10 stitches in his head. He missed the game. Mark Elaine had to keep wicket. But I remember he, he came back and said, still think it's a good idea. <laughs> and he, you know, no, no helmet right back in those days. No. He just had his sunglasses on. And he went on to do it brilliant. And that made a huge difference to us, him, him standing up to the stumps. Was, was he the most dedicated cricketer you came across in your career? Yeah, absolutely. He would leave no stone unturned. He'd absolutely model 
mm. professional, glosses you through and through, had no interest at all in playing for anybody else apart mm. from Gloucestershire and you know a fantastic gloveman I mean you know I've watched some of the finals back and he'd take balls that go between some a batsman's bat and pad you know and then just he'd just melt into his gloves and he'd just throw it away to cover as if nothing had happened and yeah he, he was just you know I mean he was so popular as well I mean John Bracewell loved him of course for what he gave us and the rest of the players we you know, we loved him as well. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. person to have in the dressing room and a, a world-class keeper. What about his work of art? Do you have any of that hanging on your walls? Yeah. Yeah, I gave him one when I retired, actually. Be- you know, because we were, <laughs> our retirements were coincided, I, I did see quite a lot of him on the physio's bench, you know. <laughs> you know, he was kind of a take it in turns on the physio's couch for most of that 2004 year. So... At the end, he, he he said he sent me one of his pictures and signed it. You know, happy retirement. It was a pleasure. What's it a picture uh, of? It's a picture of Cheltenham, Cheltenham right. College, where cool. we had so many good days. Brilliant, excellent. And the final question I was going to ask was just about the ECB night in 2017 that Andrew Strauss organised to kind of give everyone a cap. How special was that? And did you did you really appreciate that gesture from Strauss and ECB? Yeah, absolutely did. It was a brilliant occasion. I mean, I think they had given some thought to the seating plan as well, because you're going to you're going to guess who I was sat next to. Go on. Uh, I was sat next to Michael Atherton. Yeah, um, there you go. Which was great. I mean, it really was, and we had a good chat and reminisced about. In fact, I think he wrote an article in in the Times the day after about how mine and his career had overlapped and coincided yeah, hugely. That, that kind of thing and that was a really nice article did you um, mention 97 and the caddick and the no, frosty atmosphere and no, the slogging in no, the nets and... no i didn't you know as i said you know <laughs> i've got no problem with um, yeah. you know if, if he you know if he thinks andy caddick is a better option than me he's right isn't he let's be honest um so i've got no problem with that at all it was great to sit next to him and chat to him i see him every now and again knocking around the the circuit. Mark Hylock was on another left arm and was on the yep. other side. So I think they'd um, they'd given some, they'd put some thought into it. Oh, that's good. Seating yeah. plan, which is good. But yeah. it was a wonderful occasion. Yeah, I mean, full credit to Strauss for organising it. We all loved it. Yeah, yeah. And then final, final question. What did it mean to you to play for England and for this podcast? What did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? Well, it means... You know, I just felt at the time that, you know, I was bowling well enough to deserve a selection, you know, for the few years before that, and particularly in 97. So it's just something that can't be taken away. I mean, regardless of how well it goes and or how badly it goes. And in, in my case, it, it didn't go well and I didn't do myself justice. You know, I still look back on it with a lot of fondness and can say that I've played one game, albeit one game for England, and, mm. and played in the Ashes as well. I wish it had gone better. You know, it's fascinating to look back on. It was a fantastic experience to go through. And a fantastic experience to spend time with Mike Smith. Thanks so much to him for taking us through his life and times. Mike referenced the article Mike Atherton wrote in the Times following the ECB night in 2017 to celebrate all of England's Test cricketers. Let's finish this episode with an extract from that article. As it happens, I sat next to the player in the room that I'd known the longest, ever since we played against each other in a Lancashire under-13s versus Yorkshire under-13s match 
at Old Trafford in 1980, Mike Smith, the left-arm swing bowler. He played once for England under my captaincy, had a catch dropped in his first spell, didn't take a wicket and never played again. There were many such stories like that on Tuesday night, the ups and downs of sports, good luck and bad, what was and what might have been. The words of Mike Atherton there from that Times article from 2017. I think you'll agree that just about sums it up. I'm glad there were no hard feelings after the Tonkin Athers gave Mike in the nets at Headingley. And that brings us to the close of play for another episode, but we'll be back out in the middle soon enough for more tales from the Ashes Annals. I do hope you'll join me. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 